Good afternoon once again, brothers and sisters. If you could, please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. It's found on page 822 of your pew Bibles. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 28 this afternoon. And once again, this is the reading of our holy, eternal God. Beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes And be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us this afternoon, Lord. We thank you for gathering us together in this place. We thank you for gathering us for the purpose of worship. We thank you for allowing us to pray as a, as a group, as a body of your children, Father, and lift up our prayers and, and, and desires to you. We ask you, Father, that you would teach us this afternoon, that you would allow your spirit to come upon this place and work within the hearts of all of your children, all of your elect here today, that we might hear this message that you've given us today. And from your word, we might understand the importance of who your son truly is and how it matters in the eternal matters of life and death, and that we might have more consideration for who we are in this world how we regard your son and how we live our lives in light of that truth. We ask all of this in the name of your wonderful, beloved son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I ask you a question that you should see on the side of the walls here. What's your life worth? I want you to think about that for just a while. I want you to sit in these pews during the sermon and I want you to consider that question. What is your life worth? How do you value your lives? What kind of value do you put on it? How do you determine its worth? How would you determine the worth of anything? Determining the worth of a car, we say, well, how old is the car? How much did I pay for it? How much use does it still have? Because its value depreciates over time. Something like a home, you invest much more money in, and depending on if you keep up with the property and invest and maybe remodel a little bit, it might appreciate in value and gain in value over time. 
What about a human life? Does a human life depreciate or does a human life appreciate over time? Because at some point, there's that one constant, that one truth that we constantly try to avoid. We can see it in the distance, we can see it in the future, but we close our eyes to it and we cut the curtains over it so that we can't see it. And that is the truth that one day all of us will die. As it says in the Bible, it's appointed for all men to die once, but after this, the judgment. This is a sermon about your death. You can't hide it under the carpet anymore. You need to face it. You need to think about it. You need to consider whether or not you are alive or truly dead in this world. The reason why I'm preaching on this is just because I started working in a hospital about four months ago. And I constantly see death around me all the time. I work security at a hospital and I sit in security, I sit in ERs and I watch people that come into the ER and sometimes they're sick and sometimes they're really sick. And whatever they thought their day was going to be that day, it didn't turn out so. They came in with a cough or they came in with a a headache or they got some kind of bad report on some tests. Maybe they got into an accident. Maybe they slipped and fell. And one day they were healthy and they were awake and they were okay. And then the next moment they're in the ER and they are not doing well. And then sometimes we get that other call that we have to go to the basement and open up that room where we place the bodies. In only four short months, I've seen dozens of bodies, dozens of people losing their lives. It's almost daily at the hospital. We got another call from the ICU. We got another call from the ER. We need to open that basement closet once again and place another body. Reminded me of my parents. I can't help but sit there as I watch these people sort of suspended in disbelief that this is happening to them. And I recall 2018 when I lost both my parents. In the first week of January, both of them ended up in the hospital. My father passed away three weeks later. My mother was there a few months, but pretty much neither one of them really made it out of the hospital. We thought they were okay. We thought they were doing fairly well. And then in one week, both of them aren't doing well. And as I was traveling, when we got the call, we went to visit. We're constantly jumping back and forth to visit my mom, visit my dad, visit my mom, visit my dad. And then we got the call when we were visiting my mom that my dad was doing really bad and we should get there right away. And me and my sister hopped in our car and we were traveling up to Cortland. And for some reason on the radio, I don't know if, you've any, ever, ever, if any of you have ever heard the song by Don Henley called New York Minute, but it started playing and it was a very surreal experience. It's a song about, uh, about things changing in an instant. And he starts off with a story about a man who's going to work and he never makes it into work. And he never makes it home. That was his last day on earth and he passed away. And everything changes in a New York minute. And that's the chorus over and over again. It was very surreal as I was hearing that song, knowing, not knowing exactly that in less than an hour my father would pass away. So as we buried both my parents, we walk through cemeteries and we see just a sea of stones all over the place. Stone after stone after stone, gravestone after gravestone of people that have passed away from this world. And we know that it's something that you have to face. Everybody's going to die. So many stones. There's probably, what, seven, eight billion people in the world right now. None of them could have lasted more than 100 years, probably. When you think of all the centuries, all the millennium that we've had in the past... 
talking probably what, 100 million or 100 billion, 200 billion people? I don't know. wonder if we have as many stones as we need to keep putting them in the place of the dead. And as you walk around and you look, you see, you see dates and you see epitaphs. I remember hearing a, a poem by a woman named um, Linda Ellis called The Dash. It's not necessarily a particularly good poem, but you've probably heard it in your lives. Talking as she was, it was a poem written about a man who was giving a eulogy at a funeral. And the man was talking about this woman that he knew, and he was so sad because he said, all we saw was two dates. But what really meant was the dash, that life that was lived in between it. So she wrote a poem about it. I won't recite the whole thing, but it says within it, it says, for it matters not how much we own the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. But as you go, you see a lot of different kinds of epitaphs on headstones. I read of one that was from an atheist that was, it was an unknown atheist buried in Maryland that said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. With his dying words, he decided to use humor to teach people about who he was. There was another unknown person that wrote something similar where he said, "I I came here without being consulted and I leave without my consent. Famous poet Robert Frost wrote a poem about his death and about his epitaph. He wrote it, and were an epitaph be my story, I'd have a short one ready for my own. I would have written of me on my stone, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. And that poem is inscribed on his, on his tombstone. And then there's the famous scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who he was not dead yet, he hasn't passed away just yet, but he was doing an interview with Larry King, and he said in that interview, he said, I already know what I want on my tombstone. It's a quote from Horace Mann, an educator who was giving his farewell address to a class, which said, I beseech you to treasure up in your hearts these my parting words. Be ashamed to die unless you have won some victory for humanity. So... What do we realize when we listen to those quotes? We hear a lot about people's relationship to the world, don't we? We hear about what they truly loved. I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Make sure you do something for humanity as if you have something to offer humanity. What did we just learn in Ecclesiastes? What do you truly have to offer this world? What is your legacy truly going to be? What can it possibly be in this world? It is all vanity. It is all striving after wind. So I'd like you to keep that in mind as we go through this study this afternoon. Because all those things should help you process what we're going to talk about. We begin in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From that time. We have to understand the context in which we're finding this passage because it's a really important thing to understand. This, of course, being the gospel of Matthew, the tax collector. As we look at the flow of what the the book is accomplishing, we read in the first four chapters about Christ's uh, genealogy, then we read his birth, uh, his escape to Egypt, 
We read about his baptism, his temptation in chapter 4, and then his calling the disciples at the end of chapter 4. And then we read the first pivot point in the gospel in Matthew chapter 4. This is just uh, shortly after he comes out of the temptation and heads up to Galilee, starts his Galilean ministry. It says in verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it begins to preach the kingdom. And we start to see a series of teachings and narratives all about Christ preaching about the kingdom of God and what that kingdom looks like. What it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Then we go into chapters 5 and 9 where we see the Sermon on the Mount. We see Christ doing a a series of healings. We go into chapters 10 through 12 where we see him preparing his disciples for opposition and being opposed by the Pharisees that were there. Chapter 13, we see him start to teach in parables and start to teach about the kingdom and start to teach about the division that will come through the kingdom and through its preaching. And then, right before our passage today, in chapter 16, verse 13, we see this linchpin. We see this pivot point. In verse 13, where we read, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And then after this confession, we see the words, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things, and that he must be killed and raised up on the third day. So that's one of the common themes that you see in this gospel. Matthew trying to be sure that we have a clear identity, that we have a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We see that from the very start of the gospel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that reads the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants to make sure that people are are seeing Jesus Christ in light of David and in light of Abraham. And most importantly, in light of the promises that come through David and come through Abraham. The promise that came through David came through 2 Samuel 7, where we read, When your days are filled, when days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So we see that the kingdom of David was one that God was going to establish through this one that was to come, and that that kingdom would last forever. 
We also see the promise that he gave to Abraham, where he told Abraham, right? As we meet Abraham in chapter 12, and Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So, and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see these great promises of God that he's going to use the lineage of David or the lineage of Abraham and he's going to use the line the kingly line of David to establish one who would come who would reign we even see that in Matthew 117 as it says this is a genealogy of Abraham to David to David to the, the exile and then from the exile to the Christ this is all pointing this entire book is pointing us to the Christ it's a record of the Christ we also see shades of Moses in this book as you look in the parallels that you find is Jesus fleeing to Egypt his temptation in the wilderness for 40 years or 40 days rather his sermon on the mount that a lot of people see is as as Moses giving the law to the people of of Israel and even in the transfiguration on the mount where you see Elijah the prophet and Moses there on the mountain being shown the glory of Christ just as they were when they saw the glory of God on the mountains and their respective mountains. So we're supposed to see Moses. We understand Jesus Christ constantly see, see him in this book calling himself the son of man. It's used repeatedly in this book, probably over 20 times from my count. And we're going to see that more as we get towards the end of it. But it begins in Matthew uh, 8.20, where it says, um, I had it listed here. Where he says, And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And at that point, he just constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over again in this book. We also see Jesus as being the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew is constantly telling us how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. In chapter 1, we see that he was born of a virgin. In chapter 2, we see that he was born in Bethlehem and that he came out of Egypt. In chapter 3, we see that that there would be a prophet that would come that would prepare the way. We see that again in chapter 11. We see in chapter 12 that he would bring hope to the Gentiles. We see that he would, in chapter 13, that he would speak parables. In chapter 21, that he would arrive on a donkey. In chapter 27, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And it goes on and on. Matthew is saying, this is the one who is to come. The one that was promised through David. The one that was promised through Abraham. He's a picture of Moses. He's a better Moses. He's the son of man that was promised to us in Daniel. He is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. In Matthew 11, we see... Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist in verse 1 where it said, Now it happened when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word to his, by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense. And there he actually quotes from Isaiah twice, fulfilling two more prophecies from Isaiah. And then we see in verse uh, chapter 16... We see, we see Peter confessing him finally as the Christ, meaning the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And it's very important that we get to this point. This is why Christ makes sure that his disciples are following the right person. He says, who do other people say that I am? And they say Elijah. They say Jeremiah. They say John the Baptist. But then he says, who do you say that I am? You are my disciples. You are my followers. Do you not understand by now? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says rightly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus follows that up with, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's God the father that allows us to follow the proper Christ, that allows us to follow Jesus Christ in the proper way. And after this, After this confession, now that Jesus has been properly identified as the Christ, it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And we see a perfect picture of the gospel there. Paul said, I delivered to you that which I first received. That Jesus Christ would die according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ is saying he is going to be the fulfillment of all of that as well. That it's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's just the fulfillment of another prophecy in Isaiah 41. It says that he's going to suffer and that he's going to die as we see in Isaiah 53. We read, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that's the gospel. We put our faith, we put our trust in this Christ, this Lord, this man, Jesus, who came to suffer and die for our sins. And he's telling his disciples that what you thought you understood about religious, religiousness is, is backwards from, from the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, these people being the Sanhedrin, those that were in control of the, of the you know, these were the religious leaders of the day. These should have been the ones proclaiming the Christ. These ones should have been the ones bowing at the feet of Jesus. These guys should have been the one, just like John the Baptist saying, we are not fit to untie his sandals. This is the Lamb of God, the one who was to come, the one who was spoken of. This is the one we should follow. This is the one you should follow. We should all bow down before this man. And Jesus Christ said, to fulfill scripture, these are the men that are going to cause me suffering. And these are the men that are going to put me to death. 
And hearing that, Peter just couldn't understand that. He couldn't take it. He couldn't accept it. So it says in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Just what, six, seven verses earlier, Christ was saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for confessing me as the Christ. And then all these, just a few short verses later, get behind me, Satan. Because we saw that the revelation that Jesus, that Peter confession of Jesus Christ being the Christ was of God. But for Peter to take God aside, to take Jesus Christ aside and say, no, this isn't supposed to happen. This isn't what should happen. God forbid that this should ever happen. This will never happen to you, Lord. That wasn't revealed to him through God the Father. He was being deceived. He was setting his mind on his own desires to keep Christ with him. And Satan works on us like that sometimes. He makes us think that we're making good choices. He makes us think that we're acting in love, but we're not acting in relation to what God's desires, what God's decree, what God's sovereign will would have us think. We're not thinking rightly about the Bible or God's revelation to us, which is why we must be grounded in his word at all times. The second we start going off on tangents, the second we start trusting in what we believe is right and wrong, we are probably going to end up in a bad place. And we're going to be doing the will of Satan just like Peter. Don't get over, you know, overconfident. Don't get overcritical with Peter. Every time Peter says something foolish or hastily or stupid, I relate more to Peter than I probably do all the other apostles when he does that. We want to say, oh, Peter's just being foolish, just being hasty again. But we're all that way. We all make poor decisions. We all think of things wrongly sometimes. And then we see Jesus' rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Sort of mirroring his interaction with with Satan himself in Matthew 4. when When he was tempted in the wilderness. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began began to minister to him. If you're not seeking to do the will of God, if you're not seeking to apply scripture rightly in your life, then you too should be rebuked. Get behind me, Satan. Because you're not seeking the things of God. You are seeking the things of devil. You are seeking the things of Satan's kingdom to come upon this world, not God's. Satan wants us to seek our own interests and be a stumbling block just as Peter was. God was interested in providing us a savior. God was interested in crushing Jesus. Laying the iniquities of all of us on him so that we might be saved by putting our faith and trust in him. Think about why we're called Christians. We're not students of a teacher. We're not rabbinites or, you know, followers of a man or profitarians or however you'd phrase people who follow a prophet. I don't know what that word would be. 
We are Christians. We associate ourselves with the anointed of God, the Messiah who came, who gave himself for us. We are Christians. It was him who took our sins upon himself. And now we see the shift again in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Notice right away that he said, then Jesus said this to his disciples. He's already dealt with Peter. He's not talking just to Peter anymore. He's talking to all of his disciples. He's talking to all of his followers. Because this is something they all need to hear. They all need to understand that they're following the Christ. They need to understand who the Christ truly is. And then they need to understand the cost of following Christ. And we see four requirements. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The first requirement is that you desire to follow him. Something that you wish to do. Why are you here this afternoon? Is it something you just do on Sundays? Is it a reason to look good or to to get out of the house, to get some exercise before you go about your Sundays? Or do you have a desire in your heart to truly be here and worship the Lord who saved you? It's important that you understand that. Because very, very often we get into schedules and we get into traditions and we get caught up in doing things just because we're used to doing them. It's easy to start sitting in these pews and start forgetting why you're here. Start getting selfish Start saying, man, I just wish I was, I can't wait to get home. Start maybe floating your eyes to your phone. What's the ball game look like? You know, all these things that can so easily take you away from the love of God. Are you considering the words that you sing when you sing to God? What does it mean to be holy, holy, holy? What does it mean to be the thrice holy God? Why do we say holy, holy, holy? How does the Old Testament use words and repetition to add emphasis? You need to be in your Bibles. You need to desire to follow God. The second requirement is to deny yourself. You need to test your desires. What is it that you want to do in this world? What is it that you hope to achieve? Right? What are your bucket list items? Right? What are those things you want to accomplish before you leave this world? You know, it's not necessarily wrong to have them. I have some. I'm actually looking to possibly go back to school. You know, I applied. Um, I'd like to, at some point, build a tiny house for myself. You know, I'd like to write a book. But the point is, can I do those things and glorify God? If I'm doing it just to accomplish something for myself, it's all vanity. It's striving after win. There's no point to it. If I can build a house for myself and say, God, thank you for granting me the blessing of a home with which I could live, something that you have given me, there's a difference there. 
If I can write a book that gives glory to God, there's a difference there. If I can go to school and say, I'm doing this to give you glory so that I can prepare myself better to work and serve in your kingdom, there's a difference there. I was talking to Paul a couple of weeks ago and we were discussing all these people that have different things on their bucket list items and people that go to spend ungodly sums of money and they go to these fancy places. Sometimes they go to, to Everest, right? And they spend it's like twenty, thirty thousand dollars to try to climb Everest. And they get to the top of that amazing mountain and they look down. What a beautiful view. Look at what I've done. I did something. Not to think that they're at the highest point where they can look up and say, look at this amazing thing that you've created, Lord. Go to all these lengths to, to, to do things that are on our bucket list, to, to have these achievements for ourselves, to look at mountains and both mountains and tops and monuments. We need to deny ourselves those desires if they're not going to bring glory to God. He says, in fact, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. That's the third requirement. Keep in mind, crucifixion was a very common practice of execution at this point in time. There's no illusions about what Christ is saying here. He's saying you need to be prepared to die to follow me. They didn't understand he was going to be crucified. This is an uncrucified Christ that we're talking about right now. He's saying pick up your cross and follow me. Even if it's going to cost you your life. Even if it's going to cause you to die, you're going to have persecutions come upon you. There's a common use execution. We're not talking about trials here. We're not talking about things going badly at work or losing your job or having strife in your marriage. We're talking about persecution that may come upon you to the point of death. And then finally, the final requirement is to follow me. Bob said earlier, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to seek a life that's, that's glorifying to God, you need to understand who Christ is and live the life Christ would have lived. Knowing full well that you can't do it, you can't achieve anything goodness, any kind of goodness on your own, you're still sinners. I understand that. You know that. You know I'm a sinner if you know me. We're not perfect, but we are here to glorify our God. We don't understand the way. We can't possibly understand how to do that if we're not knee-deep in this book, seeking the things of God, seeking the examples of Christ and the apostles on how to be Christ-like. We need to follow Him. Christ has warned them about this several times already. In Matthew 10, he, he told them, he said, But beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about, what you are, about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in the hour when you are to say it. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then further down, he says... Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
And he who do, and further down, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's how God determines worth. Are you truly following after Christ? Are you declaring that you are a Christian, that you are one who follows this Lord Jesus who came to suffer and die for us, and you are seeking to follow that example by giving up your life, giving up your desires, giving up all your selfish pride, and seeking to live a life that would emulate who Christ is and what he has done for us? Now, when I say that, I want to warn you, I'm not, there's a danger of romanticizing that. When it says, um, sorry, when it says, who, uh, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think a lot of us sort of, especially men, as we tend to do, we sort of romanticize this idea of being Christian warriors, right? I certainly think about that sometimes. I remember I sort of, I, it makes me think of, a, there's a famous scene in, in Shakespeare uh, in Henry V. It's called his St. Crispin's Day speech, right? And it's him gathering the soldiers and sort of psyching them up for the big battle. I won't say the whole thing, but I'll recite this one portion where it says, this story shall be good, uh, this story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks of those that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. It always remakes, I always love that speech because it always reminded me of one of my favorite movies, Braveheart, where uh, William Wallace gives his own speech. It sounds very similar where the, the Scottish soldiers are standing there and they see the English army and they want to run, they want to flee, they want to get out of there. And he asked them, will you fight? And they said, no, we'll, f- we'll run and we'll live. He goes, yes, if you fight, you may die. If you flee, you'll live for just a while. But then many years from now, dying on your beds, would you be willing to trade every day from this day to that for just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they'll take your lives, but they won't take your freedom? And men see Christianity that way sometimes. We want to think that we're warriors in the kingdom, that we're standing there and that there's this whole host of evil, this whole host of, 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 of demonic forces on the opposite side and that we've got our swords and that we're raising, ready to blaze into battle. That is not Christianity. Christianity is 2 Samuel 17, where we are the cowering Israelites. And we need a champion named Jesus Christ who comes as David and defeats Goliath single-handedly. He is our protector. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. He fights the battle. He wins the war all on his own. There's a sense in which we are to die for Christ, but it doesn't mean that you're just warriors. There are people that are trying, and that's fine. You know, The end abortion now, those people are out there, and they're fighting tooth and nail to, to glorify God. 
And amen to those brothers and sisters that are out there. But to deny self and to serve Christ doesn't mean you're just out there being warriors. Sometimes it is selfless. Sometimes it is silent sacrifices of going to a brother or sister's home and holding their hand when they're going through a tough time. Of praying for people. Providing for people. Teaching people. Praying communally with them. Going out helping the homeless. It's those silent victories sometimes. God wants workers and warriors. Not only that, he wants you to be both. It's whatever God requires of you. If he wants the silent, the silent selfless sacrifice, you provide it because you work for him. If he wants the warrior, you be the warrior. You be bold for Christ when he calls you to it. You have to be willing to be both. I'm running out of time. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. As we run into the last two verses, 27 and 28, it says, In light of what we just read, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Once again, we see that phrase, the Son of Man. We see it constantly. We see it over 20 times, as I said, in this gospel alone. It was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And it alludes to the, the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where we read, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In those verses alone, you can see both of the promises of David and Abraham being fulfilled. The everlasting kingdom and all the nations being blessed through Jesus Christ, it's all there. And that's who Jesus claimed to be. I am the Son of Man. In verse 27, he quotes from Psalm 62, 12. A psalm that talks about God being our rock and God being our fortress and God having the authority where it says, then he will repay each one according to his deeds. And Jesus Christ is applying that to himself. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the God that's in control of that. I will declare judgment on people. I will repay them for their deeds. When you look at Jesus Christ in that light, it's kind of understandable that Peter would be so confused. If I read that passage about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I was convinced he was the coming of that Christ, I would think, of course you're not going to die. Look at what it says. You're going to come, you're going to have an everlasting kingdom. But it's not coming just quite yet. It's coming in the very, very near future. Jesus Christ gave him a short picture of it with the trans, uh, transfiguration on the mount, which comes in the very next chapter after this, chapter 17. But we see the fulfillment In chapter 26, when Jesus Christ is betrayed and he's handed over to the the chief priests and the scribes. And it says in verse 62 of chapter 27, And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whither, whither, 
sorry, whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quoting from Daniel 7, and he uses the word, he says, from hereafter, meaning from now on. This is it. I've come. My glory and and my crucifixion, while you think you're going to be killing me and destroying me, that's my inauguration. I'll be robed with the king's robes. The declaration will be posted on my cross. I'll have a crown of thorns. And you think you will have won, but you have not. You've simply instilled me on my throne. Well, the throne is to come. But this is his inauguration. This is him being declared king to all of the people. It is a future promise. So as I conclude, I ask you again, what is your life worth? Is it worth a life lived for self? I certainly hope not. Is it a life lived for Christ? Is it a life worth giving up in death, whether it be physical or personal death, to give glory to God? As we said, if you don't have that, it's all vapor and vanity and striving after wind. It made me think a lot this week as I was thinking about it. I've had, over the past couple months, I've had some really weird dreams. But on a lot of occasions, I've been waking up and knowing that I had an interesting dream and wanting to write it down, I start to think about it. And the moment I think about it, I start to lose it. The moment I start to pick one specific moment from that dream, it instantly goes away on me. If it's a person, I start to see a person and they just kind of fade away to nothing and I can't remember the dream anymore. I have a feeling that hell is going to start out that way for a lot of people. That those that are cast into hell for not who Christ was, they're going to start to try to look back as they realize the pain that's about to envelop them the eternal suffering that they're about to face for not worshiping God as he is. They're about to look back on all their lives looking for any semblance of hope, any semblance of, of peace or joy, some past you know, uh, relationship or some past party days that they had that they can look back to and try to, try to close their eyes and hope that they can see it and hope that they won't feel the suffering for even a moment. And as they do that, they're going to look back on their entire life of joy and pleasure and sin in this world, and it's going to start to fade away into nothing. And they're going to realize they have nothing to hold on to. All they're striving on to wind is, is gone, and they're left with nothing but the undeniable horror that awaits them in hell. All those dashes on those tombstones that are just now broken and corroded with nothing left to show for it. All those sarcophaguses that sarcophagi that are in Egypt that we that we tear up to study over history, not even worthy to know the person that's in it. We just want to know the historical background about it, and that's just the, the tombstones that we're aware about, not the ones that have been destroyed by weather over time. The ones that are so corroded that you can't even do a rubbing to try to tell who was there. The tombstones that are uprooted and moved to different places. All the the Indian burial, burial grounds that are that are transported. That's all those people have to hope in. Something that they cannot hold on to forever. But we, as it says in Colossians 3, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. And I certainly hope that you believe in that. I certainly hope that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can relate to me because I'll tell you one thing. If I ever, well, I know I'm going to die. But when I die, if you're going to write anything on my tombstone, I don't need dates. I don't need a dash. I don't even need my name on the tombstone. You can simply write, in the name of Jesus Christ, this grave will open. Because I will not stay dead. That is a temporary condition. You can throw the stone away. My rock is Jesus Christ, as we sang. And I hope he is for you as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, we, we love you so much. We thank you for being our Lord. We thank you for being our Savior. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. Even though we, you've called us to a life of service, you've called us to a life of, 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 of honoring you and worshiping you, we know that we fall short of that, Lord. But we aren't perfect because we can become perfect. We are perfect because the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, has cleansed us from all of our sins. And through faith and trusting in him, you've given us the ability to repent. You've given us the ability to honor you. You've already washed us clean and you're going to allow us into the kingdom of heaven. And you will open the grave of everybody in this room that has repented of their sin and put their faith and trust in in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone here to remind them of that, those that have done so, and those that haven't done so, that you would remind them of the urgency and the brevity of life so that in their final days, their final moments, even here now sitting in this room, they might realize that they too can repent of sin and come to your son in Jesus Christ and be saved. We thank you for all these things in his name. Amen.